Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going, and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other form of old-fashioned media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Broadway Melody of 1938 from 1937 with my wonderful guests, Zoe Palco and Kyle Cirilla. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield. And today on the show, I have my two wonderful guests, Zoe Palco and Kyle Cirilla. Welcome to the show, both of you. Yay! Hi, Sarah. Happy to be here. Hi. So this week we talked about the classic Broadway Melody of 1938 from 1937. It is a musical fantasia. How did this viewing feel for both of you this time? It might have been your first time, so I phrase that like you've seen it several times. I never saw it before. It's my first time, longtime fan, first time watch. No, I uh, first time I I saw it, and who knew that an equestrian show business crossover (laughs) film was the movie that no one thought they wanted, but it exists? Oh, I needed it. I love it. I felt like you would both appreciate the snark factor and the talent factor of this, you know, because you appreciate a good old fashioned musical. And that's what this is at the end of the day. It's a musical about show business tied into a musical about horse racing. I feel if anything, they didn't go far enough with the horses. I was like, (laughs) where, like dressing up tap dancing horses, something like the big number at the end had no horses. Oh, no. The horse showed up at the end. Oh, that's true. So they could kiss in front of it. Yeah. So, okay, we're going to get into all of this people at home. Don't worry. (laughs) But let me tell you why I chose this film. Because you might be like, I have never heard of this film. What is Broadway Melody of 1938? Let me tell you. 13-year-old Sarah first discovered this film on TCM. Eleanor Powell was the star of the month, I think. Either that or they were just showing a bunch of her movies for no reason. I saw this movie and was like, Oh, I'm all in. And I found all the other Broadway melodies and watched them and just became a really big fan. I like taped it on VHS and watched it. Um, And what makes this one better? Like, let me explain what the other Broadway melodies are. So first of all, the very first Broadway melody is actually called The Broadway Melody. It's from 1929. It's an MGM musicale about like making a musical behind the scenes. And it has the music of Arthur Freed. So Arthur Freed is like a famous... Uh, producer but also songwriter and he wrote the lyrics to a bunch of songs that were famous in the 20s a lot of them are in singing in the rain and he wrote these songs with a man named Ignacio Herb Brown who writes the music so like they wrote a bunch of these songs that are in the MGM catalog and then will be in MGM musicals forever and ever till the end of time and we all know all these songs without even thinking about it so we have that original the Broadway melody I have never seen it 
and is not part of this world. So, like it's not part of this series. Okay. It's its own thing, you know, and it's from the late twenties. So they're still figuring stuff out. So these movies, Broadway Melody of 1936 is the first and it stars newcomer Eleanor Powell, who is like a tap dancing genius. She is so good. And that movie has her and Robert Taylor, just like this one does, um, except it has Jack Benny in it too. And Jack Benny was the person that sort of discovered Eleanor Powell. He's one of the people that is credited with that because he saw her dancing in a club in Atlantic City when she was 12. So that's kind of like the startup. It's similar to this movie, except that there's no horse racing. So that movie, Broadway Melody of 1936, kind of saves MGM from commercial failure at the time. It does really, really well, pulls them out of a slump, gives them a lot of cash in the box office. So they make another movie, Broadway Melody of 1938. It's not a sequel, but it's got a lot of the same cast in it, and it kind of ups the ante. With horses. With horses. Because they were like, the first one's about making a show. What could the second one be about making a show? Plus horses. Horses and horse racing. Obviously, that's what the first one was missing. These movies star um, Robert Taylor and Eleanor Powell as the two romantic leads. Robert Taylor is like a famous star of the day. He was like a very handsome, sexy leading man. Um, (laughs) And he doesn't really do much. Like he doesn't sing and he doesn't, you know he's just this handsome okay so that's robert taylor and they were like he's got the star power for this newcomer eleanor powell and she's got the talent girl can tap dance she's amazing so broadway melody of 1936 broadway melody of 1938 and then it's followed by broadway melody of 1940 which uses a totally different formula it still has eleanor powell but they put fred astaire in the robert taylor part and you're like oh my god this is gonna be amazing oh and also instead of arthur freed songs they use cole porter songs um Begin the Begin is featured in that film. But 13-year-old Sarah did not fall in love with it. Because I remember reading, like, they don't have a lot of chemistry. And you guys, they don't have a lot of chemistry. So for my money, Broadway Melody of 1938 is the sweet spot. It's got Judy Garland at age 14 when they filmed it, 15 when it came out. It's got Buddy Ebsen. It's got Sophie Tucker. It's got all these amazing vaudeville Broadway people in it. That's why we chose Broadway Melody of 1938, because it is simply the best of the trilogy. The, there's another part of the trilogy, actually. It's a quadrilogy. <laughs> Is that how you say it? it's a four-parter? In the 40s, they came out with a movie called Broadway Rhythm, which starred George Murphy, who is in this movie, but he's playing a different character and it's a totally different plot, but it's the same director and it has like Hammerstein and Kern music. So that also exists. So it's like sort of in the world, but not in the world of the series. I hope that wasn't too confusing. Did that make sense to everybody? Is everybody on board? I'm on board. There were movies before this movie. There were movies before this movie and after this movie, but this one's the best one. That's why we picked it. That you love the most. That I love the horses. most. Because of horses. Because of horses and Judy Garland. Mostly horses. Before I do the plot synopsis, I also just want to share that 13-year-old Sarah loved Eleanor Powell so much that when we were supposed to write papers, like we were assigned to write like little papers about two famous people and like you know turn them in and deliver a speech about them and i wrote my two papers about eleanor powell and fred astaire so like that's how much i liked eleanor powell at the age of 13 so this movie is bringing it way back for me i feel like when i met you at the age of 18 you were still pretty into uh miss powell as i recall like hi my name's sarah do you know eleanor powell And we were like no Lifetime. Have you watched Broadway Melody of 1938? It is far superior to Broadway Melody of 1936. (laughs) That was probably the first thing we talked about, Kyle. Probably what, yep. And then I walked away. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then we were friends forever. Anyway, okay, so that's the background of that. Now I'm just going to do a quick plot synopsis and we are going to get into this movie and what makes it so bonkers because it is bonkers. It's such a weirdo movie, but that's kind of why I like it. All right, so plot synopsis. Picture it. The year is 1937. We're getting ready for 38 though. It's the new, you know, yay, new year coming up. Um, there's this horse named Stargazer. Wait, no, I have to go back even farther. It's a wild ride, guys. Movie opened by the horse. Blackout. <laughs> I'm telling horse. you, the horses make this film. Lights up horse. <laughs> Still stay with the horse. Okay, there's a horse named Stargazer. And these two guys need a job. These guys are George Murphy and Buddy Ebsen. Their show names do not matter. And they're like, okay, we are horse people. We're horse trainers who also are vaudeville performers. We retired from the world of vaudeville for the steady, steady work of horse trainers. And we have seen an ad in the paper to work with this horse, Stargazer. So they go work with this horse named Stargazer. And um, the rich people that own the horse are just kind of clueless and kind of terrible, but it's fine. And um, they hire them, but there's this girl just kind of standing around wearing like a very cool riding outfit who's like ah oh, you're taking care of the horse wrong and she takes care of the horse and they're like wow you're right we are taking care of the horse wrong you're smart lady why do you care about this horse so much and she's like well this used to be my horse and then we had to sell it you know because hard times and uh they all end up on a train uh because they're taking the horse to the next horse race and the horse was injured in this last horse race but okay, but the people that own the horse are also making a Broadway musical with Robert Taylor. And he's not only a producer, but he wrote the book, which is like the script of a play. He wrote the book and the music and the lyrics, and he's a producer. So he's all in on this musical and he is in business with this main guy. So him and the horse and the horse trainers and <laughs> Eleanor Powell are all on the train. And then Eleanor Powell and the horse people get along and uh, start to sing and dance as you do, you know? Um, and then Robert Taylor comes in and he's like, whoa, that's the new lead of my musical, this tap dancer on the train who's also a stowaway. Yes, please, her. So he wants to pick her, but uh, the boss's wife is into Robert Taylor and wants to like have an affair with him. And she's not cool with this and she doesn't like it. But, you know, he casts her in this role. We also along the way meet a bunch of character actors and Judy Garland and her mom, as played by Sophie Tucker, are trying to get Judy Garland in this musical. And uh, they got a big number. And there's just a ton of weird little character moments for absolutely no reason other than it's like, hey, audience, isn't this kind of funny? And the musical's super nostalgic. It's like, hey, remember vaudeville? And remember old Broadway? Didn't you like that? Here are some songs from that time. And remember these people? Didn't you like them? And so they start to put up the musical. At one point, the horse goes up for auction because the wife is terrible. And Eleanor Powell buys the horse, but she doesn't have the money. So Robert Taylor borrows the money to give to her. And he makes a terrible business decision about the musical where he's like, I'll give up my musical for this like small amount of money to buy this horse. Um, if I don't pay you back in 60 days, the musical's yours, boss man. Um, then what happens? Then uh, she finds out that uh, the producers are going to pull the money if she's in the musical because the wife wants to be with Robert Taylor. And she's like, ah, God, I got to pull out of the musical. And then the horse is now not a racing horse anymore. Now it's a jumping horse. And they entered it in a horse jumping steeple race competition and uh now to get the money for the show they're gonna bet all the money on the horse but you guys at home the horse 
only responds to jumping when it hears opera. So an Figaro. opera singer has to sing Figaro to get the horse to jump, which happens. And then they presumably win the money. We actually don't see. We just know that they win because their names are on a marquee. So we're like, oh, it must have gone through fine. And the show's going on. And, and Eleanor Powell's in this amazing finale number where she has like a big tap solo and it's incredible. And then um, the horse comes on stage and her and Robert Taylor kiss and they are together forever. And, uh, and then the horse is happy and everybody's happy. Did I get that plot right? Is that correct? Insanely enough, yes. You, when you watch it, you're like, this, is there even a plot holding this thing together? And then you realize <laughs> not. how complicated it is. It's so complicated. It's almost not a plot. I watched it in two chunks on the first viewing. I, I finished it and then I was like, wait, what, what did I watch? <laughs> and yeah. I realized I couldn't talk about any of it. Cause I'm like, what, hap- what happened? And I started to rewatch it and then it got a little more clarity. But you know what? I think that they're okay with that. I feel like they had to have known. And they're like, you know what? Deal with it. Watch or tap. It doesn't need to make sense. It just needs to be fun. Yes. Which it is. And like what I thought we were like signing up for, like, because I, I didn't know what this was, but I was like, oh, it's got a year after it. And like, I'm looking on, you know, my streaming thing and there's other things that have years after them because didn't know it was a you know a quadrilogy i was like oh it's gonna be one of it's just gonna be like a review and like it is kind of like a review but they're trying to maybe maybe it's trying to be a little more movie like we have to have a plot but because i thought this was gonna be more like the like the zigfield follies but it's just we put it on stage or like the george white scandals that's one right from like that time period from like the time period where they just had like, there's a bunch of songs we put together and, you know, like that is kind of what they did, but then they have a plot. Like, yeah. it's just like, let's put these people in and where they are in like the specialty act. I was almost wondering, and I didn't realize it was just like a series of movies. They have those, the one, uh, the Sophie Tucker's boarding house and they have like the two old men do the like skit that's kind of like a he's on first thing. And you're like, this didn't hold up like some of the other champions in here. I'm just going to dive in to the scene of the sneezing. Can we talk about what the F that was? It reeks of, this was a comedy thing that was like a vaudeville thing that's like, they're old and famous and probably did it for 300 years. And it's so <laughs> good. We got to put it on film. Isn't it great? Yeah. It lasted for three minutes and 91 seconds because I rewound it and timed it because I'm like, this feels like it's 37 minutes long. Let's see how long it actually is. And it was three minutes and 91 seconds about sneezing. It's just, I hate that part of the movie. I love this movie. I really do. But that could have been edited out. It was the most unnecessary, boring thing ever. And I think you're totally right, Kyle. I imagine that they're probably two famous vaudeville performers. It makes no sense. And it's not even that funny. Because I think all the other little vaudeville bits have something in them, right? Like the guy with the dogs, that that the other the guy that's the other part of that scene. He was funny. He was entertaining. The the girl, uh, the health girl that was like, I'm from Brooklyn and I'm funny. She was funny, right? Like everyone that was vaudeville in character had something, but the sneeze brought nothing and was just boring. Do you think that we would have had our minds blown in the day? It was a sneeze too far. It was so long. Like it, it's the length it was that was the issue. If it was like 20 seconds, I'm like, okay, whatever. That's fine. Weird. Four minutes long. Yeah. It is. Fu- that's so long in a movie. I feel like I do this every time I come in here. 
the, so many times I've come on your podcast <laughs> is while we're talking on it, I like Wikipedia to be like, why didn't I look at this originally? Not to have an ad for Wikipedia, but if you go to the Broadway Melody 1938, they list the cast, and there's a man listed as the Sneezer. And when you go to him, he has the very, very short bibliography. His filmography is Broadway Melody of 1938, The Sneezer, Broadway Melody of 1936, The Snorer. It's, it's a, a bit. bit. It's a bit. He was known for his various monologues purporting to analyze sneezes, snoring, and hunting. Thank you for looking that up, Kyle. Yeah, he was the only real downer. Although I will say, at the end, he did advance the plot when he sneezed, who is she? And then... You know, the guy was like, let's find out together, shall we? And the doorbell rings and it's Eleanor Powell. So I was like, they could have just done that one and moved us all along beautifully. And when was the next one you said that the one that's after 1938? It's 1940. Oh, well, he died that year. So maybe. Oh, so he couldn't have been, he couldn't have done a third. (laughs) (laughs) He sneezed too hard. His body couldn't take it. Oh, and they weren't even satisfying sneezes. They weren't even like a Miss Adelaide sneeze. None of them were satisfying. Nothing about that scene was satisfying. Oh, I know sneeze. Kyle is a beautiful sneezer, people at home. Side note, you don't even know. Many, many, many. A He'll do like a lot in a row. Five it's at least. Really, Five yeah. at least. Okay, I'm really glad we covered Sneezegate. Right out the gate. Most important thing. Synopsis, dive into that sneeze scene. Let's get to the really hot point. Here, listeners, here's all the things that are bad about this movie. Hope you want to watch it. <laughs> no, but we have young Judy Garland in her, technically it's her film debut because before this all she um, had done She'd been signed by MGM and she had made this short film along with Deanna Durbin where they were like showcasing their two different singing styles and how they were stars. And that movie is called Every Sunday. Oh, I like that one. I've seen that. Yes. Um, So Every Sunday is the short film Judy Garland was in. Um, And then they got her to do this thing for Clark Gable's 36th birthday where she performed You Made Me Love You just like she did it in this movie. And Louis B. Mayer was there and was like, oh, I'm obsessed with this. I don't even care what our next musical is. You are going to be in it and you are going to sing that song so the whole reason judy garland is in this movie and they wrote her this part is because of singing at clark gable's birthday party when she was 14 years old it's singing this exact song the way she did it um and then i do want to talk about eleanor powell and tell you guys about her if that's okay because i am a fan and i did write that report i wish i had the report she holds up she holds up she holds up she's not super frilly she's very strictly like i am tapping and you're gonna watch me tap um, I don't have the Fred Astaire quote, but he he had a quote that was like, she's not a girly tapper like them other dames. She's a straight tap dancer. And you're like, okay, Fred. That's, Uh-oh. it's a quote that sounds like that, but it's not that, it's better. Okay, anyway, so Eleanor Powell. Um, her mother put her in dance classes when she was 11 because she was terribly, painfully shy, which honestly, I think you can tell with her as an actor because she's not the world's greatest actress. Let's all be very honest here. Um, but she was trained in ballet and modern dance and acrobatics she started to like perform professionally around 12 for like Atlantic City and clubs and stuff and she realized that if she wanted to like make it to the next level she had to learn how to tap dance so if you'll recall in this film Buddy Epson has a joke about learning to play the fiddle in 10 lessons that's what Eleanor Powell did she took 10 tap lessons and that's the only formal tap training she had and she turned into one of the greatest tappers on film ever F you, Eleanor Paul. <laughs> Isn't that crazy, though? To be fair, she had, like, very solid ballet technique. Probably played a part in that. Um, but what they would do to her, I will never forget this, because I think they did it to Vera Ellen, too. They they would tie sandbags to her feet 
so that um, she could feel the ground better and it would be harder for her to tap. So I think she can nerve tap like Vera Ellen can too. Um, but that's oh. how she kind of developed her, her strength and tapping. Um, and her, she had a famous teacher before that teacher named uh, Ralph McKernan, who really believed in her, who kind of pushed her forward. So kind of him, Jack Benny, and there was another person are credited with like making her a thing, like getting her seen. She was inspired by black tap dancers of the day, John Bubbles Sublette and Bill Bojangles Robinson. Um, and they were, they had different tap styles. And so she kind of, um, viewed both of their styles and incorporated that into her own along with ballet and acrobatics. And that's kind of her signature style is like ballet acrobatics tap all put together. So she's doing a really, let me explain why I think what makes her special about her tap. She does a really grounded tap, but she is high in releve. So people at home, if you take ballet, a releve is when you're really high on the ball of your foot. So you're not fully on point. You're not fully on the top of your foot. You're just on the ball of your foot. But she dances really high on the ball of her foot. Like she can tap that way. Um, and I think that's, you don't see that a lot. Like that's that's pretty rare. Plus she does this in heels. So like we're talking about Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly. They are fantastic. They are not wearing heels. She's like crazy tap dancing in high heels on a releve on the ball of her foot. Um, so she's, that's very, very impressive. She didn't have a super long career in dancing. I mean, around 1940, it sounds like she got gallbladder surgery and needed time to recover. And from that point on, she wasn't doing as well. Like her pictures didn't do as well. Some of her famous pictures are Born to Dance, Rosalie, Honolulu. They're, she's great in all of them. Check them out. Born to Dance is with Jimmy Stewart. He's in it too. It's really cute. Um, but she, her last like good dancing performance is in Ships Ahoy. But she, she, um, she does Morse code with her little tap and feet. But her career starts to kind of die in the 40s. And um, then she retires to raise her son. She gets married. And then she becomes a minister in Unity Church. And I'm like, oh, that's really interesting in the 50s. She does some TV here and there. She was on the That's Entertainment specials. And then she died of ovarian cancer in 1982. But she had a pretty, a pretty short career and that's kind of a bummer, but we have like these performances of hers that are evergreen and all the people of the day really laud her as somebody that could really hold her own in tapping. And that was very special. And Ann Miller was like, I took my style from her and you can literally see the influence. Um, Eleanor Powell does what I call puppy dog turns. So her arms, when she does any sort of turning are like a broken wrist and a broken elbow. Like they're tucked in tight to her. And Ann Miller does the exact same thing when she turns. Mm. So you can literally see the influence. Mantis. Does she sing or she get dubbed? I think my young heart just wants her to be wonderful. So I didn't look <laughs> too deep into it. Do you want to check it out? Did yeah. she get dubbed? I was trying to, and it was like unclear. Or it usually was dubbed, but not always. She seemed like she was really sick. I, I was shocked when I saw it because I was like, I think sometimes you can tell... You know, like Vera Ellen, White Christmas, and she said, oh, so low. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But maybe they just had somebody good. Yeah. That's what, one thing I kind of noted. Like, I was like, I kind of get her not moving. She doesn't have this, the singing style in this movie that you equate to those tap dancing ladies that come through the 40s and 50s. And so I wonder if it was just like a, like a tapping ingenue, like, isn't really what you think of. You know, it's more like the brassy broad. And I feel like she's like, she has like, she's like this ingenue, gorgeous lady. And they put her with this kind of soprano voice, which, which may or may not be her, hers, <laughs> to be determined. 
and then she's like but then she's like you said she's tapping like with the voice right i think she's just like a type that doesn't have a place to go and she's not quite 42nd street Mm -hmm. or they're trying to put her into that like kind of boyish thing and i wear pants and it's like too like pretty vanilla in a nice way frankly but she can tap she can tap like oh my goodness she can tap if you do not believe me, people at home, check out the numbers in this, especially the finale when she has her big tap solo. I could watch that all day. She's so good in that number. Ah, oh, her technique, all of it. It's gorgeous. I love the lines that she makes with her legs. It's so great. I mean, and that's what these things are about, right? Like they're, I'm sure they're planning out, here are all the things we want to put in this movie and here are all the songs we wrote and how can we put them together and that's why the plot's so wild because it's just like <laughs> we don't care because we gotta oh we gotta fit sophie tucker in and like uh, give her a scene and give her a song you know put that weird sketch in and like that's the point and like i mean i still don't get why there's horses involved but they they really want it, it. makes no sense there did not need no to be sense. horses maybe it's just because it's like depression time and it's just like winning the lottery is like the best thing that could happen to you kind of thing and that's kind of what horse you know yeah horse racing's big horse racing is cinematic there's this movie called Broadway Bill a few years ago that would have come up before this. And I was like, I wonder if that influenced it at all. It's about like horse racing and love. And I'm like, maybe. Like we already bought a horse. We might as well put it in another movie. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. I don't know why they added it, but I do love that they added it because it is so weird. And I do want to say the tap solo stuff. It is so cool. We've mentioned she wears pants a lot. So a lot of the women, especially back in the day, if you're tapping, like we're thinking 1950s Vera Ellen, your legs need to be full on display so we can see everything, which isn't bad. But it's like she has a lot of agency and she wears pants in almost every single dance scene, like full on long pants. And then them putting her in a top hat and tails is totally referencing Fred Astaire from 1935 in top hat when he did his whole solo tap number in a top hat and tails. So this is just kind of like, yeah, I'm a woman and I'm doing the same thing Fred Astaire is doing, maybe even a little bit more challenging in the tap. Sorry, Fred. Fred's gorgeous as a dancer. But I think Eleanor Powell is a stronger tapper. Yeah. Or the style reeks of like, I am doing the work. Mm-hmm. Like it's like that. The style is like, I'm impressed because she's doing work. She makes it look easy, but she's doing something. And like Fred Astaire is almost like not even doing it. He's walking on air. He's effortless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really don't want to pit them against each other. They are excellent. There's like certain things they say like in entertainment that's like hard to find out because like people don't talk about it. Like- being like a theater kid I, I was like really interested in like when do like microphones come around on Broadway and like you know everyone's mm-hmm. got those mics now on their head and it's like it's like a hard thing to find out about and I, a similar thing that I'm always interested in is like who's doing their own tapping because they, mm-hmm. they they tap the sound separate to like put it in and I'm and some people do their own and some people don't and she's I'm she seems like somebody that they were like she was doing her own sounds I she's think. got to do her own mm-hmm. oh yeah for yeah. sure I'm totally with that. Do we want to talk about the notable numbers in this piece? Yes. Yes. So so what is interesting about this, I feel like, Kyle, you touched on this earlier. We don't get a musical number till 17 minutes in. So like for a musical, there's no like big opening number. We just kind of get the overture and credits with the music that we know. And then we don't get our first musical number till we're on the train with the horse. And um, it's Eleanor Powell, Buddy Epson, and George Murphy doing like a very vaudeville style dance and it's kind of implied like we were in vaudeville let us show you how it's done follow our feet and then she's like oh you want to see how it's done let me show you and she like takes over and then they have like obviously 
a lot of films have like the mini racist montage where they're like, here's different styles of dance in different places. And you're like, oh, please stop. Don't, don't do a Native American dance. Don't. I was like, oh, this is the music. This is like some of the first incarnations of the songs from Singing in the Rain. Yes. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. this is Good Morning. Yes. But the diff- a different version on a train. And it was like so much the same that I was like, oh like people in the day maybe semi remembered it i mean people don't have quite the same we don't have you they didn't have youtube and like you know things where you know maybe things stayed in the theater longer and stuff like that so maybe they maybe they're just recycling it but like obviously it's got to be this homage um later going on by gene kelly and them being like oh we're doing this again with these numbers and it's just makes me more appreciative of singing in the rain and like the extent of the nostalgia because as like a little kid, you watch that and you're like, it's an old movie. Yeah. And you don't realize it's 50s talking about nostalgia of like their own era. Like, you know, like us yeah. watching something from the 80s or the 70s now. Yeah. Well, maybe, mm-hmm. even, maybe even more right, later than that. Um, and like, so that was really cool. You're like, oh, yeah, yes. But they're definitely doing that sequence. And I, that's why I always think yeah. you sing in the rain because you're like, oh, God, deal with the, God, deal with like the hula number right now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they did it again. They did it again. <laughs> and they do it after singing in the rain. I recently rewatched I Love Melvin, which is like a Donald O'Connor musical after singing in the rain. And they do it in that, too. But it's just him. And I'm like, could we stop? Do we don't need to do fake musicals of the world to this piece of music? We get it. A big thing of it too is though, it's not just even the dance, is there um there's a uh like a famous song. I think it's in I want to say it's in good news. And it's like, I want to recognize the tune. Do you know that song? Yeah. And it's about like in these big movies and like orchestras, it's like you you take the song and you keep changing it. Like you have to keep putting it into a different arrangement and stuff and it's like you can't even hear the song anymore and I feel like movies were really big into that we're like we're constantly going to be like putting it into a different style within five minutes and I I'm, and it's like well if I have to dance to it I have to dance to it yeah but that's just like the stuff that's just the movie styling of how do you make an eight num- number? It's like, you have to do something with it. You're right. It's like, we only have yeah. the rights to this catalog. This is what we got. How do we make that a little meatier? I know. Change it up. And we just want to like keep, we want to keep it going and keep you humming the song as you leave this, yeah. leave too. Mm-hmm. Do we have anything else we want to add about that one? I don't remember much other than the horse participated and I was concerned for the horse. So one thing I was wondering was like, what is this, what is this train car? Like this train car has a place for the horse. This train car has a like a couch. Like it has like the scene. It has a kitchen. It has a kitchen. And I was like, does the normal person in 1937, 38, like know what this train car is? With a stove and a fridge, two cots, a horse. Like, did they make this up or is this a thing that we're supposed to know Um, about? Okay, so this is my take on it. (laughs) Now, after never thinking about this before, (laughs) there's usually a car that's like the storage car, right? It's got the stuff you're moving from one place to another. Maybe someone was moving a kitchen set and a couch. At the same time, someone's also moving a horse. And then the cots were for those two trainers because they are so low class that they're not even allowed in like second or third class. They got to sleep with that horse. And then, you know, they need to have special spots just for stowaways, which is why they had those little empty 
cans that a stowaway could hide in, which later appeared to be grain things for where the horse gets the grain. So maybe that's why they were there. But then like the rich guy who owns the horse and his la-di-da wife come and visit the horse in the boxcar and the composer of the musical comes with them as well. And just like, why are they there? Just to check on the horse that probably can't race anymore because of the tendon? Yeah, it was so odd that I was like, I don't understand this. But then I was like, was it weird to people at the time? Like obviously like train, people had more concept of trains than we we, like are used to planes and things. Maybe they just were like, oh, every, every, there's always a, Kitchen in the horse car, I assume. Yeah, yeah you know, everyone knows that. There's no purpose for it. Like, it wasn't like they were like, now I'm making eggs. Because if you think about it, I guess stowaways would always try to do that then. If if boxcars were that comfortable, um, if they always had those accoutrements, they'd constantly be hopping aboard. Do you think it's because they had nothing to do because it was the 1930s and that they were bored? So they're like, hey, let's just walk around the train. You want to go check out the boxcar on the horse? Yeah, there's nothing to do. It's the 30s. Maybe there also was no one else on this train. I was like, is this a private train a la like Beyonce's private jet? There's no one else like in the entire of New York City. Like those two Italian guys that kept trying to get their money back. I think they were Greek. They were Barbie. Greek. Sorry, I don't know. Oh God. They were Greek. I thought they were Italian. I think they're supposed to be Greek. They were ethnic. I don't know. My apologies to everyone. They were vaguely ethnic Man. from the 30s where they're like, hey, we got an accent. Where are we from? We don't <laughs> Oh, like that. There was I mean, olive there, oil there was involved. Italian. I don't know. My yeah, apologies to everybody. And okay. they were barbers, like barbers to Bill. Like I was with, I thought Italian. This is your first time watching. The real opera singer guy was probably Greek. And they were like, eh, Greek's close enough to Italian. We'll put you into the Italian stereotype, Mr. Greek. Yeah, I bet right. Yeah. But they were like walking around New York City and they just like, we were looking for him and they just bumped into him like five times in the backyards yeah. of houses and like no one else is around anywhere like it's no one lives in new york city except the characters in this show they didn't have the budget oh and when they showed that like look at the city isn't it beautiful it's like three (laughs) buildings with lights and you're like oh that's not broadway oh boy (laughs) isn't it glamorous and huge and you're like oh god and then they show the met and it's not in lincoln center that was the big shocking point for me of like was the met not in lincoln center at one point in time yeah because it didn't exist until like 58 wait so that wasn't even the real met that was a fake met so it's the fake met metropolitan where there, there's an opera performance of carmen happening and then next door in the barbershop they're also singing carmen and it's so the met just hadn't been a thing yet did this predate the met and come up with the do we have the met because of this movie the metropolitan <laughs> opera definitely existed okay the only reason i know is because they were gonna do porgy and bass and porgy and bass is really <gasps> old right yes the 30s the met and they were like, but we want to have black people in it. And they were like, no, sorry. They were racist. We're racist. And so it definitely existed. But the modern day beautiful Metropolitan Opera House with the, the chandeliers. chandeliers and everything, that's very, you know, it's like post West Side Story because that's where yeah. they're. You're right. That's where they were going to build it. And that's why that new movie had that all that stuff in there. I wonder if they were at like a town hall or something, but like something that still exists in my, or just someplace that doesn't. Well, it said the Metropolitan on the side. So I was like, is was there a theater called the Metropolitan maybe? 
It used to be at Broadway in 39th, says Wikipedia. Oh, I liked the introduction because a lot of musicals at this time, they were trying to transition from pre-code musicals, which were like body and sexy. And they were like, now we are under control. Families can come see these movies. How do we tell people that? Lots of opera. So we've got like Nelson Eddy singing stuff. And we've got that famous soprano lady whose name I can, what's her name? The very famous soprano lady. You know who I'm talking about? Nelson Eddy and her. She's like. Jean. What's her name? You've got the two famous opera singers. Jeanette McDonald. Jeanette McDonald. Thank you. I was like, it's, it's Jeanette something. Jeanette McDonald and Nelson Eddy, opera singers in movies, made things like quote unquote high art and classy. They're the most white. Very, very white. They, and then Deanna Durbin goes in that way. But this movie, by opening at the opera, but then shifting to like, hey, actually, we're going to have this guy sing opera in a barbershop. We're kind of like lowbrow and fun over here, but we still got some high art, but we're like lowbrow and kooky. It gives us like the tone of the movie. So I actually really like that we set all that up. Um, do you want to talk about like Sophie Tucker a little bit? Who's in this movie? Yeah, I feel like that's the movie I want to watch. Like the life of Sophie Tucker? I mean, I guess like there is like stage the stage door what's the like where all the women that's literally called stage door and zoe mm-hmm. and i talked about it did. Like, there is that movie but i feel like this movie where it's just like the kooky people who live at the house and they're all performers like i'm like i think that's the movie i want to watch and i think that's like like that's a better purpose for a review when they finally got to the boarding house and they were on the table and clearly it was a house full of performers it was kooky. It was, you can't take it with you. Yeah. It was stage door. Mm-hmm. Like, I immediately was like, oh, there's the movie. Yes. Now we're starting. This is what it is. And then it just didn't. Like, it just continued down its crazy road. But, like, for that for that time <laughs> in the boarding house, I was like, oh, now I understand what this movie is. And I'm just going to forget everything that happened before. Mistakes were made because they just went right back into it. As soon as they started sneezing, I was like, the huge mistake. Big mistake, huge. It's such a good idea. It is. Well, Stage Door would have been, it came out the same year. So maybe they were like, it's already oh. being done. It's already a thing we can't copy. Mm-hmm. But, but Stage Door is about like young, beautiful women. Like this could be like, we, we perform in the living room because we have nowhere else to perform. And then like, we get discovered. And now we're, you know, it just seems like it's like so asking for it. But there's horses and that are more important so they needed the horses they needed them i like the whole stage door stuff in it but it wouldn't have fit ultimately again we needed the horse racing to move our plot forward because money but um i did love there was like a line about the boarding house where the that the one man said where he was like the food is good nobody pays nobody leaves (laughs) i was like yeah that's (laughs) that's the great line about that house and he had one million dogs and i thought that's not right that's a little scary i'm afraid for everybody (laughs) Wow, that's too many dogs. And he's been there apparently for weeks and weeks. And this is the first time the dogs jumped on the table. <laughs> like, I think you trained them to do that, sir. He wanted to make a statement. That's the problem with this part. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it is. Not the, not the seven minute comedy routine with no laugh. <laughs> That's why I'm taking away one star. People might have laughed in the theater. I'd like to see the focus group that was like, my favorite part is the sneezing. The sneezing. Um, <laughs> but wait, the Sophie Tucker, people at home, I want to explain who she is to you if you're not sure who she is. Yeah, who is She's she? a performer, a Broadway vaudeville performer from like the early 1900s through 1920s. She was like sassy and sexy. And you know she was a big deal because as Kyle once pointed out in the show, all people who like Broadway musicals only know about history because of Broadway musicals. So the reason <laughs> I know who Sophie Tucker is is because she's in the lyrics 
in Chicago, the musical, and Sophie Tucker will shit I know to see her name get billed below Foxy Roxy Hart. So that is how I know who Sophie Tucker is from Chicago. Roxy Hart is like, Sophie Tucker, the biggest star, would shit to see my name above hers, right? So she was a big star from back then, kind of Mae West-ish, very sassy, broad, sexy. I think she was, the song she sings in this, The Last of the Red Hot Mamas, that's like her calling card. She's got this big, booming voice. I feel like at one point she probably did blackface, which is terrible, but that's probably what her career was because, you know, vaudeville. Mm-hmm. Well, she's also sort of in, she's a white lady, but she kind of like fits into more like the African-American blues queen mystique. She's got that sound, that vibe. Yeah. And so I think it's like, she's just like, she can sound like that and she's white. So she's going to move a little farther in the world. And that's how she can be yes. the biggest star in the world because people want to hear that, but they maybe don't always want to hear it from certain people that's a great point Mm -hmm. so like because of people being racist and like black people not being allowed to perform in these spaces they can't make it far but sophie tucker who has this like voice this bluesy voice can make it because she's white Ooh, i mean and she's very very talented Mm -hmm. in doing what she can but she's she's getting a leg up yeah Ooh, thank you for sharing that but that's people at home that's why she's like in this and um also, it should be noted that in the big final number, Robert Taylor has included every person he has ever met throughout the musical in this show. So even if you're like, I don't want to be in the show, as Sophie Tucker says at one point, he's like, I don't care. You're in the show. Here, say a poem. And she says a poem and sings a song. Where are those scenes? Like we have a five minute sneezing scene, but we don't have the scenes where he's convincing these people to be in his show or like a rehearsal of them in the show or like anything like there's no discussion. There's no discussion about except Sophie Tucker, which which she is like big fat fucking no thank you. And then the next time you see all of them, like everybody in this movie is in the show. And I'm like, where are those scenes? I would have liked to see that. Because you're assuming that they wrote up script. <laughs> they picked True. they wrote they wrote a list of things we want to do in this and they were like how do we connect the dots oh yeah horse okay more dots they established that buddy ebsen and george murphy were vaudeville performers so i believe that they could have stepped into those roles but that's about it they both have pretty significant roles for being retired vaudeville performers who are now horse trainers who didn't do very well they only performed once and then they and they were booed off the stage from what i understand from there what the palace from the palace they were booed off uh judd clampett from the beverly hillbillies he was like not as not as talented as the bob bill no. as the as, as george murphy as george murphy yeah i always feel a little bad for george murphy because he's like in a bunch of these and he always just pops in and he's always like the aw shucks guy the guy that's like i want to get the girl i'm never gonna get the girl i want to be a star i'm <laughs> never gonna be a star like that's his part over and over and over and over and sometimes he gets to dance and sing and sometimes he doesn't and you're like, ah, oh, poor George Murphy. But I actually loved Buddy Epson's tapping in this. He's so like weird and wily that it's kind of fun to watch. He's a little Gumby. Like Gumby, great example. He dances with Judy Garland. It's cute. He's like a straighter Ray Bulger. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's a great comparison. Wow. Wait, and yeah. you've tied in this missing connection, Kyle. So here, people at home, is a crazy fact. Buddy Ebsen was the first Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz. He had filmed several scenes. He played the Tin Man, but he ended up being allergic to the aluminum paint and had a really bad reaction. And then they cut him out of the film and put Jack Haley in its place. And I actually prefer Buddy Ebsen as the Tin Man. And I feel so bad for him that he couldn't continue in the film. But you can like 
see online. You can see his scenes that he shot. And he was supposed to be in that with Judy Garland. Oh, I didn't know that was him. Like, I always heard that. I didn't realize, And that like, makes sense because he's, like, twangy. So exactly. he can do the, like, stuff in can. So him and Ray Bolger yeah. would have been perfect together, you know? Like, he's very of that vibe. So I'm really glad you called that out. Because J- Jack Haley always feels a little, I don't know, miscast or, like, He's a very sweet blank slate. Blank slate, yes. It's like he doesn't there. bring yes. a lot. And I think Buddy Epson would have yeah. been really cool. And I was looking this up that Arthur Feature at the music, one of his first gigs was a uncredited producer on The Wizard of Oz. Do you think that he sees Robert Taylor and is like, that is me in real life? Like, because Robert Taylor in this film is playing like the producer, writer, doing all these things. And Arthur Freed's like, yep, that's me but maybe less dreamy looking because Robert Taylor's very dreamy looking. That's good. <laughs> a man can dream. He's just handsome and in nice suits. And you're like, wow, I really am falling for this. All you did was show up and look good. And I'm here. I'm here for it. Did you have like a big like role role? Like doing it? He was in Camille before this, that, that famous one with Greta Garbo. You know, it's the big dramatic actress and she dies and uh, and the coughing and, the wow. you know, and he's in that. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, because it's in mm-hmm. Annie, Kyle. Remember in Annie the Musical when they go to the movies? That's that's the movie that they see. That's what they're going to see? Yeah. Oh. Oh, it's in, isn't it like a funny girl? Oh, yeah. The coughing joke. Yeah. And he was married to Barbara Stanwyck, your face. Yes, he sure was. He was married to Barbara Stanwyck. But yeah, they were married for a while. And I think that he was her one true love, even though she was also bisexual. Anyway, and I think he might have been um, pro-McCarthyism. Like pro, when the people spoke out, he was one of the people who was like, yeah, let's name names. And you're like, oh, damn it, Robert Taylor. Damn it. But he was beautiful. He was beautiful. (laughs) Oh, more misconnections that I think are really cool. Something I was thinking about this time, there's a scene where Judy Garland is hugging Sophie Tucker, who plays her mom, and Sophie Tucker is singing Happy Days Are Here Again. And I was thinking of that famous moment with Judy Garland and Barbara Streisand, when Barbara yeah. Streisand is singing Happy Days Are Here Again, and Judy is singing Get Happy. And I was like, oh my God, it's a full circle thing. I kept thinking during that number that it must have been so, like, more emotional, maybe, for the people who were watching it, since it was in, like, the height of the Depression, and everything was horrible, and there was a war going on that we knew we probably would get involved in at some point, and, like, it wasn't a great year. (laughs) 1938 was kind of a crap time, so... I can just picture everybody in the theater just like listening to that and everyone's like, happy days are here again. They're like, I wish they were. Or it's just like full escapism. They're like, it's it's true. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's like happy, sad, you know? All the songs that if you're seeing this, it's just pure nostalgia. Like what Mimi and St. Louis did, it was kind of like, remember these songs from the past and how they made you feel. Here, we're going to mash them up into one big song and we're going to sing all of them and you're going to know them and love them. Remember? So these weren't weren't written for the... Piece? No, I think they were already written. Well, that's like what they they sing in the rain. They like Pound and Green write the script for Sing in the Rain. And they're just like, put these down, like get these songs together and make them in a show. And they're like, okay. <laughs> and then they did. And they did a great job at it. But they do it like 20 years later. Like it's like now they're like real, like these songs are like into the culture in a different way. Where I feel like in this, they're kind of like songs you know for like recent hits. And like that is like then it's just like nostalgia in a different way. Well, I feel like there's this movie for me and my gal that Judy Garland eventually makes, and it's kind of her transition into playing like adult parts. And Gene Kelly's in it too, and it's his film debut. Um, And it's the same vibe. It's like, we are showing you vaudeville, time of the past, songs you might know. 
um, George Murphy's in that one too, but I'm connecting them right now because you were reminding me of that film, but Eleanor Powell was supposed to be in that film. Um, and I think because it has the same kind of feeling as this, and then they ended up recasting her with Judy Garland. So I wonder how that must've felt to like, they're making this nostalgia musical. You were in an OG nostalgia musical, and now you're being replaced by the younger generation who's incredibly talented. And they're going to be like making these nostalgia musicals moving forward. I think that's another reason why you don't see her too, though. Because like, look who are the women in all those things. You don't get someone that's the same age as those men. You get someone younger. You get Vera Ellen and Ann Miller. Yeah, exactly. You get um, Janet Lee. Who's in Singing in the Rain? I can't think of what her name is. Debbie Reynolds. Debbie Reynolds is like 18 or something wild. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's who the people want to that weird always thing where it's like the older guy and the younger girl seems like normal in my head. Well, and I wonder if it's because Eleanor Powell isn't, she doesn't present as super femme. Like in this, she's, she dresses really androgynously um, and she's got short hair. And she has that vibe. Like she has that spunky, she's not, she's not super feminine, like in the traditional sense. She's not real short either. She's tall. You're yeah, right. She's really tall. Yeah. So you're right. There's like other factors at play that might've kind of kept her from continuing and she, she has like a dominance when she dances. And I wonder if there were men that maybe have, might've have felt insecure about that. Also, I think there's an, in like the nicest way, she's like a one trick pony. Like she's the best at this thing where they can't deny it. So they're like, we got, it. she's yeah. so good at this. <laughs> but it's just like, she's like, I did like, she was getting dubbed by somebody in this movie. Okay, okay. And she, you know, if we could dub her acting, we might do so. Yeah. You. I mean, like, yeah, so it's, but it's just like, she's just so phenomenal at this thing where it's like, how can you not have her? And it's, in this era of like the Baco people, you're just like, you can be the best thing in the world at one thing. And that can push you through as long as you're attractive. And she was white too. Like, I'm sure there were black artists who could do this as well. Well, sure, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So do we want to talk about what it was like seeing Judy Garland saying, you made me love you for the first time. How'd that feel for you guys? This is like the one number where I was like, <laughs> oh, I've seen like, I was like, oh, I've seen this before. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like I've gone to like, I'm not like a big opera buff. I've gone to like an opera in Chicago and then you go to the, and you're like, why has this thing been famous for a hundred years? And then you're like, oh, there's one song in it. Yeah. Like, oh, that's why we still watch this. Cause like this song and it's like, yeah. in, that's entertainment. That's, they yeah. showed in that. And like, it's uh-huh. you know, kind of became a staple of hers to an extent for a while. And I like want to make it like, feel like it's creepier than it is, but it kind of is like fine. How old is she supposed to be in this? 13 12 like she's having a like a lollipop in the beginning like are you trying to be eight like i just don't know where she's supposed to be so i don't know how creeped out i'm supposed to be either they build her as being 13 but it was not accurate she was older like when this came out she was 15 and she might have been 14 when they shot it but they were like and 13 year old star judy garland like they pretended that she was younger like she was clearly older but I was wondering how old they wanted her to be. So 13 was how old they wanted her to be. All right. Apparent cuteness or charm of the number or which could make it sticky as well is that she's so young and she's singing like these things that are so like adult and it's like oh it's just to like the guy in the magazine like and her voice is so like adult where like so it leans into it so it's like it's actually like working on a couple different levels at once. So I'm kind of like okay with it. If he like showed up and was like, I don't know, whatever, like, you know, in the mirror and was like, then I feel a little creepier. And I also feel old because he it's supposed to be that she's pining over him and he's 36. Yeah. Which is pretty old, but I'm like, oh, that's 
I'm well, I'm older than that. <laughs> and I think of <laughs> like he just seems one of those people that were, was perpetually old. Like even when he's young yes. in movies, he still looks old. Well, and he would have been like the dreamboat of the day. So even though he is not my cup of tea, I am not a Clark Gable person. Never have been, never will be, and don't love the story about him and Loretta Young and him like raping her. Not into that. Um, plus Ooh. Vivian Lee said on the set of Gone with the Wind, he had terrible garlic breath all the time. Anyway, not a big Clark Gable person. Um, but I feel like today it would be like maybe Bradley Cooper would be a good example because he's a little bit older and he's like handsome. Henry Cavill. Henry Cavill, great example. I feel like it's kind of like in our generation, it was like the Johnny Depp ew. to what to us being, you know, and again, ew, exactly. Ew. Like there's a little weird edge to it, but yeah. But the age I feel is kind of there where it's mm. like he's quirky, he's yeah. older, but there were like teenagers obsessed with him and it was weird. I'm getting like that vibe from this. I don't know. But I also agree with you that like it's puppy. It's like 13 year old girl. Like in a way I wasn't offended by it. There was one more number I wanted to talk about. Feeling like a million. Forgettable name. But it's like George Murphy and Eleanor Powell dancing in a park. And then it starts to rain. Also gazebo dance number following a Fred and Ginger one. So I'm like, oh, you guys kind of ripped that off of what Fred and Ginger Mm. did. Because they had, isn't it a lovely day to get caught in the rain? And they're dancing in a gazebo. Yeah. And then they fell in a puddle that really was a lake. The largest puddle <laughs> in the world. Like, what is this park? Is it just a fall in a hole? The bacteria of New York was all I could think of. I was like, if this was really New York and you fell in that puddle, you would be dead because of the bacteria. Yeah. That's all yeah. I could think. It's probably worse even then. The asbestos. There's like animals and stuff hanging they out. They had a horse in their backyard and no one said anything ordinances aren't what they are now also they were like it costs so much money to keep up a horse and i was like but your person is stealing horse food and your horse is in your backyard so how much money does it cost also what are the credentials you need to watch a horse (laughs) apparently (laughs) like they pick anybody off the street i also love how she bought the horse for like 17 something but like she got the money it was one thousand two hundred and fifty dollars and i was curious how much that was like with inflation and everything how much that would be today so much twenty seven thousand eight hundred and ninety one dollars that's what he gave her because he loves her and i love that he's like well she won't take it if it's from me but she'll take it if it's from you and i'm like that's weird logic that's okay. like an out, just like, she doesn't like you. She'll accept it from you. You're not a threat. Sounds like communism to me. Also, the rich people are pretty terrible in this. And I think that's on purpose. I think that was like a, hey, depression. Aren't these rich people out of touch? And then they made all of the good people bad at business on purpose, but it all turned out okay for them. Can we talk about the terrible business practices? Welcome to the business ethics part of the podcast here. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's weird that the, the wife... Rich wife is a former Corrine, mm-hmm. but that has no no purpose in the plot. Why did they pick her as like a person from the theater? You know, it wasn't like it didn't come back at the end. It wasn't like she like well like realized she was wrong because she felt for the poorest girl. Like there was no purpose for her for being that except just being like the old guy likes young dancing girls. She was supposed to be like a rival of Eleanor Powell. So if Eleanor Powell is like the latest up and coming Corrine that's going to make it. She doesn't like that because no one else can be a success, but you're right there. I really added that. That is not an actual layer that is added <laughs> and it should have been full no, circle. That's like when we do the stage <laughs> version, we will, there's a whole number 
Yeah, when when Harvey Firestein writes the new book, he's gonna put that in <laughs> and fix that. Yeah. Well, because that that lead guy was interesting too, because he clearly had a lot of ideas. The rich man, he was a soda jerk who somehow made it big, and his wife is like the secret behind a success, and she's the one that calls all the shots, but they're mean shots. Maybe it's just the idea of like putting these people used to be poor, now they're rich. Yeah, you could be them. That was enough. That's what all they wanted to hear, to be like, are you poor in the audience? You could be rich. Find a horse. The rich people become rich because they have a product that's basically ice cream on a stick. And they had a great line. They called it a sucker, even though that's not what a sucker is. A Whipple sucker is born every second. Yeah, that's what two-time watching it does. <laughs> Thanks for watching this film twice. My 13-year-old self is applauding you so hard. It befuddled me, so I needed to have one more viewing. The last number was, like, absolutely fantastic. Do you remember that time when Eleanor Powell did a front walkover in a top hat and did not lose her top hat? Do you remember that time? And Zoe, I thought of you because you always have that thing where you're like, this play does not make sense. Like, if I was watching this show, there's no... The the show within the show has makes no sense at all. Zero sense. Um, and I was thinking of you when I was watching that. But her dancing in the final number... This incredible. We heard one of the songs that supposedly is in the musical, which is like a love song. And then mm -hmm. there are lines that they talk of in the rehearsal of like, I love you so much. The most generic like line ever that was ever written. And it's like, how is that in this musical? Also, you're in a top hat. Also, you're on a cityscape. But then Judy Garland shows up and then like the old like Gumby guy comes and gives her flowers and then they go in a car and they drive off. With a top hat on the car, by the way. Like, are you dating? She's 13. You're like 45. What is happening? I'm just, I'm every, I mean, I was entertained, but what? It's not a play. It's like this other thing that was a weird transitional piece that they were like, we do this thing on stage and let's put it on the movies. And we're like, but we got to have a plot. Like, okay. Like, it's not, don't ask for it to give you things it can't give you. Do you know what I just realized, too, in this exact moment, is that they had Eleanor Powell do a big costume change in that number. They have her come down as though she is Ginger Rogers in a gorgeous, like, feathery ball gown. And then they have her do a costume change where she comes out and she's Fred Astaire. And it's almost like them being like, she can do both parts. She can be, like, the ballroom dancer who is being, like, tossed about and graceful and balletic. And she can also be this dope tap dancer. And I only just realized that right now. So she's Fred and Ginger. I love that. Respect. Respect. You can do her own dance steps backwards. She did her own dance steps backwards and heels. Someone else is the coat rack. I did want to mention, though, the hair was bad. I really, really did not care for the 1930s hairstyles. Oh, God, they're bad. They're so bad. I would look at their hair and be like, it's like pasted down and weirdly curly. It's the helmet with the curl. Helmet with the curls. Yeah, I, I hated all of it. I thought, what an unfortunate time. You have no money and the hairstyle is really bad. So you all look awful. It's a bad hairstyle for all the people. I thought it was like hers is almost too long is the problem. It's like center part melded to your head and then curls at the bottom. The curls at the bottom, I think, is a problem. When you just have the boy cut, like... The feathered boy cut thing, it's like kind of fine. It's where you start like pretending it's something else. When it becomes a depression mullet, it's the problem. <laughs> depression <laughs> mullet. Sadness on the top, sadness on the sides. Judy had it and I was like, oh, Judy, it's bad. So did Sophie. It was a rough hair film. Robert Taylor's hair looked great though. Cause you know, he slicked it back. Bare minimum. <laughs> all right. Oh, and then there's the agent receptionist who we have not talked about at all, who is the queer representation in this film. 
and who loves Judy the moment they meet. Judy yeah, says something true. sassy, hands him a lollipop. He says something sassy and licks the lollipop. And I'm like, oh, from the start, Judy Garland knew her demographic. That whole scene in, the, in her song and like, it was just fun. I think that was like one of the highlights for me. Kyle, what was your take on the gay receptionist? I, I'm saying that he's gay. He, I, he did not come out during the show. He's very queer, like dandy stereotype, but like, he's like got a job and he's, he's in charge and he's, um, he seems like someone you're like, oh, I've probably seen that person before and I have no idea who he is. I feel like that was the case for almost everybody in this film. I feel like every single person, I'm like, you are a person that people know when this movie came out. You know what I mean? I feel like almost every single person was like a cameo in a weird way for, for the audience that would have seen this. They're all like C-list stars of the age. Yeah, that's yeah, you're mm-hmm. right. I thought he was great though. I was like, he's yeah. really funny. He's crushing it. The delivery is solid and on point. Um, mm-hmm. I really liked I really liked him. Yeah, me too. It's almost like feels a little more modern or something. Like he doesn't feel of the 30s or something. Like it feels like he could he could carry a plot. Which is what Judy Garland says in her song about Clark Gable. She's like, I liked that you act just like anybody would, like a real person. And you would meet at a party. <laughs> at school or a party. That's what she says. Uh, also why did they film it so you couldn't see half her face in that one part in thank that song? you that's what i was thinking it's like give me all of jude's don't give me half of jude's give me all of her give me especially what's come like the vessel where all of the sound is coming from can i please see her mouth i concur uh <laughs> okay modern lens we are now in the modern lens portion of this show Ba-ba-bum. um what does not hold up let's do that shit first oh, okay. um okay I mean, obviously there are racist lyrics and appropriation that pop in because these are songs from the past. There's a word I'm not going to say, but it refers to black people. It is not the N word, but it's, you're just like, Ooh, I don't love that, that that's in here. I'm not cool with it. They're referencing a song that like it's in the Judy Garland, like peppy number, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they're just quoting a bunch of songs and they're, they quote a, um, a minstrelsy song. That's like probably from the teens or something like that but it's just like you're like oh it's jarring you're like oh shit oh yeah. gross don't love that there's also the racist dance montage lest we forget with mm-hmm. the indigenous uh, performance that you're like oh please yes, don't do please that. stop and then there's this treatment of the horses and shit where you're like oh this is the 30s so they probably killed a bunch of horses on this set which is a bummer like that scene where the horse falls down i was like oh i bet that horse probably broke its leg and they probably ended up killing that horse. Like, you're just like, oh, this probably wasn't great. Yeah, yeah. And I was surprised that they didn't actually go, because it was such a, a normal thing, I feel, in that time, that that's what happened to racehorses and horses that were no longer used. So when she, they were talking like, oh, the he's has a tendon injury, he's he might not race again. Like, I thought they might have, she might have gone like, and then he's going to turn me turn into glue. You know, like, that's that's the stakes of why she's so invested in this horse that she helped raise, which is adorable. That they never bring up again. Yeah, yeah. Never learn more about her background. She grew up on a farm, is a perfect tap dancer. Has the most beautiful clothes for having no money and being a farm girl. No money at all, but quote, she was practically born on a horse. That's a real quote. That is a quote. Wow. 
So yeah, we're not going to reconcile that past, but I think that you're right. So they're like, she's going to send this horse to the, they say like the chop shop or they say something like that. Right. I don't, that's the weird thing. I don't think they ever do, but like my mind went there just because in that time period, that's all you can think of is like, that's what, that's what happens to horses with that don't ha- have a use anymore. When the charge of the light brigade was a year before this and they killed a lot of horses on that set. So you're like, oh, I bet that was what I was thinking of when I was watching it. Just like, oh, I bet you it was rough to be a horse on this set. And then they made the horse make weird noises and stuff. And I was like, what are they doing to that horse to make it make those noises? Right. And like, she loved it so much, but then like they were tap dancing in the boxcar and the horse was clearly distressed and they're all like, ha ha ha, tap dance. I agree. But to be fair in the story, if that horse did grow up on a farm with her, he's very used to her tapping. You know, that's how he goes to bed every night, you know? Maybe in her fictional world of this story, instead of putting like saddlebags on her feet, she put like horse feed on her feet and learned to tap dance. Aww. I want to see that story. And the horse followed her around and ate the feed that spilled out. <laughs> and that's how they became twins. Yes. Why don't we have that story? That's I'd great. That story. That'd be great. That's Good like, job. what's that movie? Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken with the girl that jumps from the thing, that Disney movie. I want that film, but like with this plot. Isn't it Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken? That was a great, like, 1990s film. It's like a Black Beauty redux. No, it's like she she escapes the depression farm and she goes to a a carnival and then there's this act where the horses jump off this giant high dive into a pool and it's like based on a true story and then she dives one time and then there was a symbol and she opened her eyes and then she hit the water with her eyes open and then she became blind but then she tried to do it anyway after she was blind and she did it and she overcame and it's a great movie it's actually (laughs) wonderful and everyone should watch it well, I guess Whoa. we know what your pairing is. Double feature. <laughs> I just found it. Yep. So I guess we're all going to go watch that now. Can we snarky movie night that though together? Did we need to cut it down to 20 minutes though? That's the <laughs> movie I want to watch of that. It's a great time, guys. Do you have any other modern lenses that you guys want to add that we didn't name? Well, I just was looking up. I was like, who was that queer dude? Like, who was he? His name is Barnett Parker. He made, I literally just counted, he made almost 50 movies between like 1936 and 1941. He's all these little bit parts, and then he like passed away in 41, but he's from England. But just the idea of like, there's these people that you, that's like where you're like, oh, I've no, I must have seen something because I probably have because he was in like 50 movies (laughs) in like a period of four years. It's wild. So we've definitely seen him. He's probably been in like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies too. Maybe, but there's not none of them are like popping out the names of I'm like, oh, like that. Oh, he's in that. It just kind of like they're just things of the era. It also made me realize, I think, how much I think of like late 40s and 50s as like the when I think of a like classic movie musical. Mm. And this era is a little earlier than I really like venture to usually. Same. Or just like have what I've been exposed to. You know, I think like mm-hmm. like once you get to you get to singing in the rain and you get to Judy Garland in her heyday. You love a forties, fifties. That's what yeah, you love. I feel like you yeah. just that's what you got you got pushed on a lot. And I think it's just like the the form hits a peak and then ends. I mean, but the thirties give you like the Busby Berkeley musicals and Fred and Ginger and this. They're not always my jam. But you know what? I do love the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers musicals and I do love Eleanor Powell, so maybe I do love them. But I'm with you in that the 40s and 50s musicals have my heart. Because they have more of a contemporary plot and are built around more of a story story, I think you get, they like oh, have 
perpetuated in the culture a little in a very different way. And if you have like older parents, I feel like that's closer to their childhood. So they were more likely Mm. to see those films and then therefore show them to you when you were young, as opposed to like the older, older ones. And color. I mean, I think people, Mm -hmm. I I remember being a little kid and being like, black and white. Like, oh, God. Like, it was like a very, like, it was a thing people tell, like, little kids talk about it. Talked about Although, it. I will say, I think this does look gorgeous. It's like a gorgeous yeah. black and white film. It's really, really beautiful. But I also think that, like, they were still figuring out the musical genre on film. Like, they just hadn't done that yet. Talkies are not even a decade old when this comes out. So they're still figuring out how to tell a story musical-wise, both on Broadway, because, like, Oklahoma hasn't happened yet. We don't have the modern musical. So I think they're they're just, like, figuring it out, and we're getting to watch it in its infancy, the modern era of musicals. Yeah. yeah that's true. Showboat has happened, though, so they've got Showboat to go off of. So no excuses. But, like, people forget, people snooze on the Showboat. It's literally the same dude. Oscar Hammerstein II, he's, like, the dad of the modern musical. That's why the through line through all Showboat and then all the Roger Hammerstein stuff is, like, the racism stuff is because of him because he was progressive and awesome uh do we have any positive modern lenses because i did write for positive i like that it's awesome that she taps in pants i was like yeah gender stereotypes break those down i like that she tells people what to do and is taken seriously and people listen to her like she's like hey man character do this and they're like that's a good idea i should do that and i'm like yeah that's awesome because this is from the 30s um i like that she's never a damsel in distress ever and I like that she has agency and makes her own choices. And they just like find her and she's realized. They found her and she's good. No man has to teach her how to dance or show her how to be a performer. And like, maybe that is a more compelling, like my free lady kind of story in some ways. But to an extent, it's just like, she was just like, I have this already and I'm good enough opposed to like some guy's got to make me into like the perfect partner a la Easter parade or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they even say, there's a line where, they, the two guys are like, let's show you how to dance. And then they're like, oh, she's better than us. And at the end, they're like, she's way better than we ever were. So she's going to make it. Like they acknowledge that verbally. I think everyone from the beginning just gives her a lot of respect, which I just yeah. love. Even her love interests too, which doesn't always translate. Like there were two guys that were interested in her and they weren't possessive. They weren't, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, aggressive. They weren't, they, they didn't like fight each other over her. All of those like hyper masculinity that you see wasn't really there. And there were a lot of opportunities where that could have been exploited and it wasn't. And I appreciated that. And it's weird because that producer line, it goes back and forth on the modern lens for me of like, I love how much he believes in her. And I love that he's like, yeah, I'm putting my faith in you because I see that you have this talent. It's not because I'm romantically into you. Like I genuinely believe you have talent and I want you to like be a part of this project and I will walk away from a financier who will not let you be part of this project because I believe in you so much. And then at the same time, he is in love with her. And so he is a producer of honor and integrity. So it's not as creepy, but you also see the flip side of that where it's like, that's not great that your producer immediately is in love with you and hitting on you and offering you in the part in the same sentence that he's kissing you at, you know? So you're like, Oh, that's hard, but he's not written in a, in that way. So, you know, he, he's got honorable intentions, but it could so easily be in real life. A producer does not, but real life, what is real life? This is all hinging on a horse race. So what is real life? Yeah. It's like in on paper, it's creepy, but you watch it and I didn't feel creeped out. Yeah. It's one of those. We are now moving into the double feature portion of this show. If you like this movie, what should you watch? Well, there's two more of them. 
as we said earlier, Broadway Melody of 1936 and 1940, and then the unofficial sequel, Broadway Rhythm, which only has George Murphy in it, but same director. If you want to watch more Eleanor Powell films and watch her really dance her little feet off, uh, Born to Dance is a solid one. Jimmy Stewart's in that one. Uh, Rosalie, Honolulu. And then Ships Ahoy is, I haven't seen it in a very long time. I don't remember if the movie's any good, but that Morse code tap dancing number is pretty cool. So maybe just watch the Morse code tap dancing number. Um, And then in general, this movie reminded me of For Me and My Gal, which I mentioned earlier, the Judy Garland classic that's nostalgic about vaudeville performers, Gene Kelly's first film. Guys and Dolls because of like the gangsters and horse racing and things. I was like, hey, this is kind of like that. Um, Broadway Bill, which is that weird 1934 Myrna Loy the horse racing movie that hey. I think you should watch. Um, even though it has nothing to do with Broadway, but the horse's name is Broadway Bill. And then um, the Judy Garland classics, Babes in Arms, Strike Up the Band, very much like, we're putting on a show. And then the Zigfield Follies. Those were all my choices. That's a lot of choices. Kyle, Zoe, do you need all features? Wild hearts can't be broken. 1991 classic film 73 on rotten tomatoes so not a total train wreck people set in the depression it's pretty great disney classic something like the same kind of time period but maybe like a little different tone a day at the races the marx brothers Ooh, yeah, which yeah. Is mm. the same year or the year before i think so maybe you see what if it's why the trend is happening at the time Pennies from Heaven, the mm. 80, 1981 with Steve Martin and um, Burnett Peters, a Great Depression piece where they, it's a musical, but they lip sync all the songs from like, from the era, like like the song, like it's recordings from the era. That's a really good one, Kyle. And then um, I was kind of like, what's happening on the other, like a more reality of what's going on in the Depression, the the cradle will rock, not the real play that Zoe was in in college. Oh, I was in it too, Kyle. How dare you forget that I was starring alongside Zoe. She had the good part. I just had, I was the person that got blown up that had a soprano. <laughs> yeah, she was Mrs. What's her? You were Joe Worker gets gypped. I was, I was Joe Worker got gypped. Because you were so. so good at that, Zoe. That was my height. The cradle will rock 1999 with John Cusack. The movie that's like about them creating yeah, the Cradle of Rock. Cradle of Rock, yeah, yeah. Like Hank Azaria, the Cusacks are in it, Cherry Jones, Bill Murray. My song was in the movie. They didn't cut it from the movie. Just, I want you no, to know. Mine was cut. I had no inspiration. But my mine made it into the movie. <laughs> my song was not memorable, and I did get exploded. And that was uh-huh. Cradle of Rock in college. I remember when you guys were in the Cradle of Rock, and I like knew a lot about it. And then we went, and they were like, we're doing it like a historical piece, just like it was. And they're like, but we yeah. made cuts. And I was like, but you cut <laughs> yes. this, you cut all the like fun songs because they wanted to make it seem like more important. Yeah. Was like, okay. Great choice. They cut the part I wanted to play so bad. There was a part. Spoon, spoon. Yeah, 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 that one. Yeah. I wanted to be the spoon singer. And they cut that whole part. And I was like, well. It's commentary. It's like making fun of like the songs of the era that they're all like. Croon Spoon. It was great. Yeah, Croon Spoon. I was in this show and I have no idea what you guys are talking about. Because they cut it. They cut parts. You think you know it. You don't. That would have been my part. And then they cut it and they couldn't play. (laughs) It's a bummer. So I knew that song. (laughs) Anyway. The same actress played it in the, the girl that sang my song in the movie played this Croon Spoon part too. In the (gasps) movie. That's how I know I would have played it. 
Anyway, doesn't matter. It was college and life is very different now and nothing matters. We've obviously moved on from it. Kyle, those were excellent recommendations. Thank you for those double features. I had one that like is not really a recommendation because I've never seen it, but I've always been like, what? Is have you ever seen Hell's a Poppin? No. No. What's that? It's, it's like a review from 41. And it was like it's supposed to be like some like really crazy, like it was like it was just a musical review, but like it was mm-hmm. at the time it was supposed to be like real like people were like, it's so crazy. And then they, like they made a movie of it, and I've never really known much else about it besides that. I'm guessing Ooh. it's probably pretty tame compared to like what it was, but it's supposed to be like the zaniest thing that's ever was on Broadway. I would check that out. I love a good review. Yeah. Um. Before we head out, I do want to say one of the things I wrote down was like, what should be the tagline of the film? Ooh. I wrote, the horse has to win so the show can go on. Ooh, <gasps> that's a good one. That's what Slow it would clap. be. Thank you. Yep. Came to me. Thank you so much for watching this absolutely bananas movie. I recognize that it's just all over the place, but didn't you have fun? And isn't she good at dancing? It was fun. I watched it (laughs) twice. It's great. Okay. And young Judy, you know, we get a little young Judy. Two numbers even. Yeah. Two numbers. And she crushes it in Dear Mr. Gable. She really does. All right. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for being here. It was a delight to have you on to talk about this very special musical. And we will see you all next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guests this week were Zoe Palco and Kyle Cirilla. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on Spotify for Podcasters, which is the same thing as Anchor.fm, so you can find us there too, to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening.